Um, please stand for the reading of God's word. If you'd like to follow along, it's on page um, 12 in the Bible in front of you. Actually, 14, sorry. We're reading Genesis chapter 22, uh, verses 1 through 19. Sometime later, God tested Abraham. He said to him, Abraham, here I am, he replied. Then God said, take your son, your only son who you love, Isaac, and go to the region of Moriah. Sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on a mountain I will show you. Early the next morning, Abraham got up and loaded his donkey. He took with him two of his servants and his son Isaac. When he had cut enough wood for the burnt offering, he set out for the place God had told him about. On the third day, Abraham looked up and saw the place in the distance. He said to his servants, Stay here with the donkey while I and the boy go over there. We will worship, and then we will come back to you. Abraham took the wood for the burnt offering and placed it on his son Isaac, and he himself carried the fire and the knife. As the two of them went on together, Isaac spoke up and said to his father, Abraham, Father, yes, my son, Abraham replied. The wood and the fire are here, Isaac said, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham answered, God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. And the two of them went on together. When they had reached the place God had told him about, Abraham built an altar there and arranged the wood on it. He bound his son Isaac and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then he reached out his hand and took the knife to slay his son. But the angel of the Lord called out to him from heaven, Abraham, Abraham. Here I am, he replied. Do not lay a hand on the boy, he said. Do not do anything to him. Now I know that you fear God because you have not withheld from me your son, your only son. Abraham looked up and there in a thicket he saw a ram caught by its horns. He went over and took the ram and sacrificed it as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called that place, the Lord will provide. And to this day it is said, on the mountain of the Lord, it will be provided. The angel of the Lord called to Abraham from heaven a second time and said, I swear by myself, declares the Lord, that because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you and make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and as the sand on the seashore. Your descendants will take possession of the cities of their enemies, and through your offspring, all nations on earth will be blessed because you have obeyed me. Then Abraham returned to his servants, and they set off together for Beersheba, and Abraham stayed in Beersheba. Uh, let's reflect on the scripture reading tonight as we pray. Lord God, thank you for your word written for us. Thank you for this story of Abraham's faith and obedience to you. <coughs> Thank you for responding to Abraham's obedience for, by providing a sacrifice in the place of Isaac. Mm -hmm. By faith, we seek to step out in faith and obey you. Mm -hmm. 
Lord God, thank you for meeting us even when we fail. Mm -hmm. Even in all our failures, you sent a sacrifice for us. In the, in the message tonight, um, please help us to learn how this should change our life. May we be guided by your word and by your Holy Spirit. And Lord, we lift up our children to you, Lord. May they understand the great sacrifice you have provided for them. May they listen intently to your word and to the teachers that you have empowered. And may it sink deep into their hearts. Amen. Children and teachers, you're dismissed. While many people consider the story that Joe just read the crescendo, the zenith, the high point of the whole Abraham saga, we have uh, been looking at the Abraham saga for the past three months. We started in September. And if you take into the fact that last year, in 2010, from September through November, we, we looked at Genesis as well, we have been in this book of Genesis and taken six months to get to this story, to get to this high point in the Abraham saga. But for the high point in a story, this one is really weird, and that's putting it nicely. In fact, this is kind of a horrible story in many ways, isn't it? Uh, one thing I like to think about when I'm preparing to preach a message is how would this look on stage? Like, we, we love the Christmas pageants where the kids dress up in their dad's bathrobes like shepherds, and it's all cutesy. And, but what would this look like if you actually took a dad with a knife and a kid up here? I mean, wouldn't you? You'd probably run out. That would be appalling. And, and I brought that up to our Wednesday night Bible study, like, what would that be like? And Laramie astutely said, well, I don't know. It's not that bad compared to the attempted gang rape and sodomy that we've just seen in the few chapters before this. And I said, touche. In fact, up until this point, we've seen quite a few disturbing stories. We've seen Cain kill his brother Abel, Noah's Ark, and the destruction of the entire known world, the aforementioned attempted game rape, game rape of Sodom, and the resulting judgment, which is raining fire and brimstone on that city, uh, Lot getting drunk and seduced by his own daughters. I don't think any of those would be really appropriate to act out on stage at church. But maybe the most disturbing part about this story is the fact that it is God who commands Abraham to sacrifice his son. It's God who initiates the test. And not only Abraham's son, but Abraham's only son. The son he and Sarah were given miraculously in their old age by God. The son they waited a hundred years for. The son whom God said he would rescue the whole world through. Now, from our 21st century Western perspective, we probably have some burning questions about this story, don't we? Like, what does Sarah think? The mother who gave birth, who waited all that time to have this son, she's not even in the story. What is she thinking? And what does Abraham think? I mean, one thing is blatantly missing in the story. Emotion. 
Is there any kind of struggle in him? It's just so matter of fact. And then what about Isaac? Isaac is old enough to carry the wood on his back. Surely he's got to have some feelings about this. And then if you keep reading in the next chapter, he's just like, I'm back at home again. Don't you think he'd have dad issues? Shouldn't we do some psychoanalysis on Isaac? Those are the kind of questions we would ask. And, and then there's, what's up with God? That question. Like, in all the other places in the Bible, God is dead against human sacrifice. He's very condemning of that practice. And yet, here he is, telling Abraham to go sacrifice his son. And why does God do that? The scripture says it's to test Abraham, but I thought God knew everything. Why would he need to ask this question? Why the test? And... Does God really test people like that? Well, if you or I were telling the story in our culture, the things that we like to know about, we might have filled in some of those gaps if we knew them. But we're not telling the story. No one from our culture or perspective is telling the story, in fact. The writing is subtle. It's actually quite beautiful. And we can learn a lot about what is not said about what is said, and maybe more specifically about how it is said. The story begins with the words, Now it came about after these things that God tested Abraham. And of course we need to consider what these things are that came before this story. I mean, logic says if we're in chapter 22, probably the first 21 chapters came before. Um, and just so quick recap, okay? Chapters 1 through 2 tell the story of how God created the heavens and the earth, and he created people in his image, men and women he created in his image. We learned how God gave human beings the vocation of reflecting his love and wisdom and goodness to each other. And through our creativity and stewardship in spreading throughout the earth. That's that's first couple chapters. Chapters 3 through 11 tell of the humans rebelling against God and how time after time they fail worse and worse and worse. But... Chapters 3 through 11 are all about God rescuing and his grace being shown greater and greater and greater. In chapter 12, God decides to choose a man and a woman, Abraham and Sarah. He takes them out of their situation and tells them he's going to create a great nation through them. He's going to bless them and their family so that them and their descendants will be a blessing to the entire world. God is going to show his love and his goodness to the world through Abraham and Sarah and their descendants. Well, of course, there's some problems with that. Abraham and Sarah couldn't have children of their own. Uh, On top of that, they both, basically, to put it bluntly, they both struggled with believing God, with trusting in his promises. Chapters 12 through 21 are cycles of Abraham and Sarah trusting and failing and God rescuing and trusting and failing and God rescuing. But maybe Abraham's greatest feat of faith thus far has been in chapter 12 when God first calls to him and says, go to the land I will show you. And Abraham drops everything and he does it. The Hebrew word for go is lek. Lek. Can you say it? Lek. Pretend like you're, you know, got some guttural stuff. Lek. Right? Okay. That's for go. Now, in Genesis 12, it's interesting because God says lek, lekha. Lek, lekha. And, and that means you yourself go. And what, the funny thing is that lek, lekha is only used two places in the entire Bible. 
Guess where the other one is? Here at the beginning of chapter 22. Lech lecha. And if you're a literary person and you kind of like literary analysis, this is for you. If you don't, just fall asleep. It's kind of like some cool bookend. It's kind of like if you're reading through this, your radar is up. Wait a minute, Abraham was really faithful last time God called him to Lech Lecha. And now we're seeing this Lech Lecha formation again in the words. And maybe, do you think Abraham's going to be faithful again? I don't know. Let's find out. And so Abraham goes. Now, there's no overt mention of Abraham's anguish. No mention of how he might felt. But in this short episode, the word son is used at least ten times. For over 90 years, Abraham and Sarah were childless. Finally, they have a son. And they enjoy him for, I'm guessing, at least ten years, right? The kid's old enough to go up a mountain with wood on his back. He's got to be kind of strong. So he's at least ten years old. And then they're told by God, who gave them the son, to burn the son. The subtlety of the writing doesn't focus on Abraham's anguish, but it certainly implies it, doesn't it? With all the times its son is mentioned. And... Well, the focus on the text is not how Abraham feels about the situation. It's not even about how Isaac feels about the situation. In fact, there's an, uh, an overt absence of any kind of commentary by the narrator um, ab- about Anything about what Abraham and Sarah and Isaac think. There's nothing even said about whether this test of God is right or wrong or normal or just or unjust or rational or irrational. None of that's even there. And just to say it's okay, it's okay to ask those questions. But just know that we can't expect clear answers on those questions. In fact, I don't believe we have this story to tell us about how people felt. I don't believe God gave us this story to tell us about God's ethics. So what is the story about? Well, a few things. First, it's about testing Abraham's faith. And when I say faith, I'm not talking about the generic kind of faith, like I have faith that the sun's going to come up tomorrow, or I have faith that the next plane I get on won't crash. This isn't just generic faith. This is faith in a person Faith, namely, in the living God of the universe. It's a test of whether or not Abraham trusts God. Now, back in chapter, in chapter 12, we saw Abraham get into a bind. He was in the promised land. A famine came, so he moved south to Egypt. Makes sense. Nile River's there. Really hard. Um, keeps growing even in the high heat. He gets afraid because Pharaoh was known for being cruel, and, um, and so a- Abraham was afraid his wife was so beautiful that Pharaoh would kill him and take her. And so you know what he does, right? He, uh, he says, hey, Pharaoh, this is my sister, and, and he does that to save his own neck. Now, the interesting thing is that God punishes Pharaoh and not Abraham. When it was Abraham who lied, it was Abraham who sinned. And in fact, Pharaoh ends up sending Abraham and Sarah out of his land with great wealth. I mentioned when I preached on that several weeks ago how Walter Brueggemann called this an example of God's economy of gift. Economy of gift. I raised the question, what if every good thing in our lives was a gift from God? Something we can't earn, something we can't take credit for. 
It's a wonderful and humbling idea. And many of us, I, I, I know I like the sound of that. I like the sound of it, but when it comes down to it, economy of, of gift is very hard to accept. Why? Because we like to think of ourselves as what? Earning a living. Isn't that the way it goes? Um, <clears throat> we like to think of us being able to do the right things to make our bodies healthy. Of making the right choices to be a good person. We like to think of ourselves as being able to do the right things to be acceptable to God. Gifts are great extras, right? But they're not the way to run our lives, or so we think. We like to feel that we are in control. We have a hard time receiving grace because grace reminds us of what we really are, dependent on God. In this evening's story, a second weakness, maybe that's not the right word, a second difficulty with the idea of economy of grace arises. What if the gift giver takes the gift away? What if the gift giver takes the gift away? God called Abraham and Sarah into his rescue mission, into his story of redemption for the world. He promised to bless Abraham and Sarah so they would be blessings to the world. And that blessing was to be passed down through their seed, through their generations. And of course, the first and only of their descendants was Isaac. So, while Isaac is their child, right? He's their child, and their only child at that. He's more than just their child. He is God's promise bearer. Through Isaac, God would rescue the world. God wants to bless Abraham and his family, and he wants to know if Abraham trusts in God the gift giver or in Isaac the gift. Do you, do you see that? He, God wants to test Abraham and know if Abraham will trust in God, the giver of the gifts, or if he'll trust and hoard the gift, his son Isaac. This, of course, raises the question, if God's doing all this testing, doesn't God know everything? Right? There are theologians who say that God is just using human terms here since we can't really comprehend the knowledge of God. And that's a very valid way of reading this. There are other theologians who say God doesn't know what people will choose and do because that's what free will means. There is a third group who says that God has the power to know all things but chooses not to know all things. And it gets more nuanced and crazy from there. <clears throat> all these positions are valuable ways to think about and to question. But all this story really says is that God tested, implying he didn't know. And afterward, God said, now I know, implying he learned something new about the situation. There's a kind of knowing, you know, and then there's knowing. There's a kind of knowing, for example, that my spouse loves me. And then there's receiving grace for her, from her that blows my mind, that proves it. There's knowing your friend is loyal to you. You know, you know your friend's loyal to you, but then overhearing them stand up for you when someone's talking about you behind your back. So regardless if God already knew what Abraham was going to do, or if you believe he didn't, the test is a test of obedience. It's one of trust. It reminds me of John chapter 6. In that story, previously, God, uh, Jesus was uh, among f over 5,000 people. He had five loaves and two fish, and he fed 
all of those people. And he wasn't really good at cutting small. I mean, like he, he fed so much that there was abundance left over. And so these people started to follow him. And later on in chapter 6, he calls them out on it. And basically says, hey, you guys are following me for the gift I'm giving you. You're following me for the bread. But there's more to it than that. You're missing out on something bigger. When you just follow me for the gift, when you just follow me for bread, you're missing out on the real thing that I want to give you. Don't seek the bread that perishes, he says, but seek the bread that leads to eternal life. And then Jesus says, I am the bread of life. I am the bread of life. How often do we seek God to fix our problems and meet our needs? How often do we pray for him to provide for us emotionally and spiritually and physically? And yet when things are going well, we tend to forget to pray at all. And we certainly forget to pray about other people. We sometimes get so self-focused. How often are we guilty of seeking the bread, but not the bread giver? And so God tests Abraham. Will Abraham trust in Isaac the gift or in God the gift giver? Abraham almost unflinchingly, it seems, trusts in God. The God who chose Abraham to be part of his rescue plan when, we had, when he had never even heard of God. The God who created life out of a dead womb. The God who showed repeated grace and mercy to Abraham and Sarah despite their sinfulness. This is the God Abraham has learned to trust over the years. And this brings us to the second main theme in this saga. Obedience. <coughs> We don't like the idea of God testing us, right? It sounds condescending. It sounds condescending. We're educated, and knowledge is power, right? We are masters of our own domain. We're independent, or so we like to think. Story makes me think, uh, makes me think of C.S. Lewis's Chronicles of Narnia, where the Pevensey children learn about Aslan for the first time, and they're hanging out with Mr. and Mrs. Beaver, and they're talking about this great lion coming back. And the Pevenseys are from our world. They can't really think in their mind. They can't square in their heads how it could be a good thing that a lion would be in the same area as them, let alone in the same room. And so they say, is he, is he safe? And the beavers, of course, they say, well, of course he's not. But he's good. He's not safe, but he's good. And all throughout those books, that series, we're reminded that Aslan is good, but he's not a tame lion. He's not a tame lion. You can't box him up. You can't always figure out what he's going to do or how he's going to do it. All you know is that whatever he does, it will be good. The story of Abraham reminds us, in a good way, that God is God. Sometimes we kind of forget that. We think God is a theory or God is in our Bible and stuck there or God is a set of doctrines. But if God is God, he can do whatever he wants, right? He can do whatever he likes, and it bothers us when he doesn't act like we think he should. Stories like this make us feel uncomfortable. They make us feel like, should somebody call CPS on that God? Because that's not a cool thing to ask someone to do for their kid. We like to judge God and say he's not reasonable sometimes. But if God is really God, if he's really God, then life is a lot less about what we think he should be like, and a lot more about living in obedience to the one who made us and the one who knows us best. What if God 
What if God was just waiting, just waiting to give you and I more responsibility? What if he was waiting to give us even more dignity, more freedom than we could ever hope for or imagine? What if he were waiting just to see if we could wield that responsibility of freedom? Obedience is what God uh, is what obedience is what tells God he can trust us. Just like obedience is what tells you your teenage son or daughter is ready to take the car keys on a Friday night, right? You look for trends and behavior in obedience. When, a- when Abraham obeys God and is about to sacrifice Isaac, God stops him. He stops him short. Abraham, Abraham! Now I know that you fear God since you've not withheld anything, not your, even your only son. And then he goes on, and he goes on to reaffirm the blessing he wants to give Abraham. He wants to bless his family and his descendants. And they're going to be like the stars of the sky, and they're going to be like the sands of the seashore. That's a lot of descendants if you think about that. The story, then, is about faith. It's about obedience, trusting God. The story is about obedience and translating that trust into action. But mostly, mostly, I think this story is about a God who provides. God provides Abraham with the sacrifice in place of his son Isaac. And in doing so, I'm blown away afresh this week by this story. All along, you know, I've been reading this as a test on Abraham to which God replied, now I know. Right? It reads that way. It reads like a test of God giving Abraham a test, and then he says, now I know. But what if this story, what if the story is also about God proving his faithfulness? What if this is about God showing Abraham that he would provide In verse 5 of this story, Abraham, Isaac, and their two servants are headed toward Moriah, which, by the way, is uh, believed to be the the general area of Jerusalem now. And so they're headed up to Moriah, and when they get close to where they're going to make the sacrifice, what does Abraham do? He says, hey, to his servants, you guys wait here. Uh, Isaac and I are going to go worship, and then we will return to you. It's ambiguous. Is Abraham lying to get a loan with Isaac so he can do this thing? Or does he have some kind of hope against hope, some kind of faith that maybe God is going to do something miraculous? In verse 8, Isaac asks Abraham, Father, where's the animal that was for the sacrifice? I mean, I see the fire. I see the wood. Where's the animal? Abraham tells him that God will provide. Was that a lie to Isaac just to kind of get him looking the other way so he could tie him up? Maybe. Or was he hoping something else might happen? The writer of the New Testament book of Hebrews seems to think that Abraham trusted God would do something. He even uh, even bring Isaac back from the dead. It says so in Hebrews eleven seventeen. You know, after this story, Abraham kind of slips into the background. Sarah dies of old age. Isaac gets married and have children. They have problems. They have descendants. They keep making the same mistakes over and over. Obedience is important, but it cannot save us. We fail far too often.
And that's why thousands of years after this story, there's going to be another story about a father and son relationship. In that story, the setting is also Moriah. Later, it would be called Jerusalem. In that story, the son would carry wood on his back. In that story, the son would be bound on the instrument of sacrifice. In that story, God the Father would offer Jesus the Son. Only in that story, there was no ram in the bushes, no alternative sacrifice. In that story, Jesus would die. In that story, he would become the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. In that story, Jesus the Son would become the ram in the bushes for you and for me. He would take upon himself all the viciousness and all the power of evil and death that should crush us. He takes it on himself to save us and the world. But God, but God raised him from the dead on the third day and now he reigns. And we now have the promise that through faith in Him, we too one day will defeat death. That after death, when Christ returns, we will rise in resurrected bodies. Amen? In the newly created heavens and earth. For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son. That whoever believes in Him, whoever believes in Him, whoever puts their trust in Him shall not ultimately perish, but will have eternal life, resurrection life. God did not spare His only Son to save us. And that's why now we can say, now I know. Now I know God loves me. Now I know I don't have to fear the hardships of life or even the face of death. Now I know. Do you know? Do you know? Do you join me in prayer? Father, help us to know. Help us to know in our hearts, not just with our heads, what you've done. That when there was no way out for us, you became the sacrifice. You provided. Help us to know in the depths of our core how much you love us, how there is nothing that can separate us from your love through Christ Jesus. Help us to know that we've been redeemed, that we are in your hands. Help us to live differently because of that, full of joy, full of hope, hope against hope. Help us to experience new freedom in life from sin and death so that we can obey and find abundant life in you. Oh God, help us to know. Amen.